bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. And today we are joined by a friend of mine, Donovan Patrick Mahoney. He is one of the first friends I made on Twitter back in like early Twitter in like 2009, 2010-ish. When Twitter wasn't the flaming pile of garbage it is now. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a flaming pile of garbage now? I didn't know. No, Facebook really is a flaming pile of garbage. How Facebook took Twitter's crown, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a hard, hard battle. Um, <laughs> hard fought. <laughs> Truly. Funny, every- <laughs> yeah. I just logged out, actually. It's funny that you said that because yesterday I just made a post and I said, I'll, uh, I'll see you guys later. This place is just like not adding to my life anymore. No, not Especially at all. this past week, like this week, this week for me was really heavy duty, like just kind of watching the way my family was interacting on that space. And like, you know, it's just it's it just comes with like very complex issues. And then people like one of the things that I've noticed about social media is it's this melting pot of people that think they're right. Um, and which makes it difficult to like really have a conversation. And, and for me, I'm really big on, um, creating dialogue. Like, like I worked on my language, um, and the way that I've communicated since like really heavily since 2012, like I didn't know that the words coming out of my mouth, like, had so much impact as to like bring people in or push people away. I knew that the way that I used my words were really powerful because the things that I was able to do were different than other people. Like, you know, um, but yeah, what I've seen on, on that space and the way that people talk is just, is so, so wild. Like, and, and and then and then people think it's cool, like it's really cool to be shitty. Like it's like, yeah, like it's mm-hmm. cool to it's cool to say things like demanding, like I demand, and like it's like, oh, oh really? Like when you demand something, like I don't know, when somebody's demanded something of you, like have you been like, oh, like that's the language I wanted you to say to me. And like now I'm totally like on board. Yeah. <laughs> facts. Facts. So so okay. many facts. Um, but Donovan, so you are a social media marketer, a photographer, an activist, and a trained yoga teacher living in Vancouver. He is a member of the Namgis Band on the Kwakwakwak Nation on the northern part of Vancouver Island near Alert Bay. Uh, and through social media, weirdly, <laughs> Donovan sheds light on the things that matter to him. So that's the downtown east side, addiction, Canada's opioid crisis, housing, and Indigenous issues. He's been sober for the better part of 15 years, and his work has been featured in the HuffPost, Daily Hive and Vice Canada. Pretty impressive resume. Quite. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I, and it's I know wild because that... uh, it doesn't. It's like when you're in it, like you guys know this. Like, like no matter what you do, until you internalize whatever your work is, it doesn't mean shit. <laughs> so like, it's like it's never good enough until you finally like like internalize that and be like, oh, like cool or. I never really think about anything that I do. And then, you know, I was talking to my aunt the other day and, and it was like, holy shit, like between us, we've just been a part of or done things in this country that like have impacted the country. And that's just like a weird thing to like, cause you know, like if you look, I'm in this little fucking shitty bedroom and it's not a shitty bedroom. It's super sweet. I live in the top of a house and, uh, with a friend of mine, um, but you know, sometimes it's it's really weird. You know, like I, I I don't know, like it's just it's so strange to me, like just life in general, like what 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 you do, and then you know you go home, and then it's like you and your cat, and you're like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like I remember when I, I was feel doing this so hard. <laughs> yeah, uh, but- yeah, like. When it's true you have to internalize yeah yeah and, um, and d d this uh this conversation you were having with your aunt you posted about it on of all places weirdly facebook we've already come full circle on that and yeah. uh you you said you learned a lot about your family and her experience and your own experience or like that conversation helped you under better understand your experience growing up so i was wondering if you could maybe talk us a bit about your experience growing up um yeah so like i guess again like what i'm i'll start to try to work my way backwards from the conversation so what that meant to me is this week you know talking to my aunt and were so when i was talking to her what i needed from her was to help um timeline my life uh, and it's like some work that I started doing in 2012. So instead of just having like jumbling memories, um, I started to like really, you know, if I had a memory, like what year did that happen? And then I would slot that into the year. And, and ever since 2012 that I've made this timeline in my life, I understand and I have less anxiety from doing that work. Um, cause it's very powerful to know, like, you know, where you are in space and time, like, okay. So in relation to when I was seven, here I am, you know what I mean? Um, so talking to my aunt, um, and we're talking about, cause what I wanted to know is in, in my immediate family, who had went to residential schools, because it was like, not something that was talked about. Um, I knew that I was impacted by my grandmother's, um, the way that she acted in life, right? Like the things that she did to cope, but I didn't really know about kids too much because my mom had taken her life when I was six. I was five. Yeah. And so I knew that was, I knew that was part of the reason I knew that like, there's definitely, um, 
something about being indigenous in there like what was what was her problem why did she think that that was the best thing for she thought that taking her life was the best thing that she could do for me and my sister and so I was wondering it's like my mom did my mom go to a residential school and no she didn't um and so I found out that it was my aunt or my, 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 sorry, my grandmother. So that made sense. Like my grandmother went to a residential school and because of the way that she coped with that, it affected the children. So this sort of like generational trauma mm-hmm. and, and then obviously like that in living on reserve and the way that people were left to deal with their stuff like um creates its own problems I think like I I've always felt like an outsider because you know like as I got adopted out um I'm a part of the 60s scoop um so the government didn't try to keep me in my community they what they did people know now is like the 60s scoop is the government took indigenous kids and adopted them out to non-indigenous families and then made sure that they didn't really have any ties to their community anymore so much so that like you know my adopted mom was essentially said to to just integrate us into the family which kind of makes sense. Um, like normal people don't know when somebody tells them something, right? Like they just say, oh, like, okay, like, yeah, we're bringing this kid into our family. And so like, of course, we think just to integrate them into our family. But with people like me who know more, like I was going, when I was adopted, I was seven, I already knew that I was native and I knew like I went to potlatch and I went to like different ceremonies and I ate certain types of food and I spoke uh Kwakwala and um and then when that was taken away from me it was like really harsh right um but anyway sort of sort of like I'm kind of drifting away from what me and my aunt were talking about but just um <clears throat> so my granny went through residential school. So she, when she came out of it, there was a lot of abuse in the way that, so she, the way she ended up dealing with it was, was alcohol. And so there was like on, on reserve, I guess there was a lot of people doing the same. And when you bring any sort of illicit substance into and around children um, that also, opens the door for um the unsavory right unsavory actions and um on unsafe people and predators um so you can imagine right like we've heard just like in colleges usa right like like these kids that are getting wasted and getting raped and different things like that and like just alcohol is kind of always in and evolved around that right um so various things happen to different children in the family 
um, and, and people don't really know or talk about it. But I never, personally, I never like was able to piece these things together and say like, like I ended up a, um, a drug dependent person, a homeless person um, <clears throat> because of these things in my life. Like I always thought, or I was told because of this archaic um, um, system that we have, like, so like Alcoholics Anonymous promotes this idea that, that it's a genetic thing. So like you, you have a disease and, and it's not because you're, 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 you experienced some shit that happened to you. Right. Um, and so this week it was like, all of a sudden I looked like very closely, like my sister who was like a baby when she was adopted, integrated really well into the family and just became part of the Mahoney's and me, I didn't. And I went off and I was homeless and, and got really heavily into drugs and really heavily into crime and all those things um, because of the things that happened in and around me, but to my mother and that was caused from, you know, my granny. Right. And <clears throat> because I'm not a therapist, like, I'm just figuring all of this stuff out on my own. Like I do have a therapist mind. I mean, like I don't, I understand that, you know, for the better part of my life, like I've been raised by social workers, counselors. And so what they did is they taught me how to think and to use my mind in a therapeutic way. So I understand these things differently than somebody that's never been to therapy or been to school for, for counseling. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm able to do a little bit of work uh, just because I've kind of always been in it. You know what I mean? Um, but it's just not something that I was like, you know, definitely like not in my teens and my twenties. It wasn't like, Ooh, super sexy Donovan goes to therapy. <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> you know, like that's that's only become like sexy and cool in my 40s. <laughs> like, now, it's like, now it's like, ooh, yeah, it's so sexy to be like going to a psychologist. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Yummy. I want a man that's like does his own work. And, and <laughs> So what's that about be you being a stand-up comedian? It's so true. <laughs> so I have yeah, a question, yeah. Donovan. Um, did you and your you and your sister were adopted by the same family? Is that yeah. true? And how did that affect your relationship with her? My sister? Yeah. Oh, uh, majorly. Um, you know, we don't. Me and her don't really have a relationship to this day um you know it's it's a super complex issue with when it comes to like why um you know me and my sister ended up where we are today because there's like normal regular family dynamics there's like obviously that stuff that's heavy duty on its own you guys know 
what it's like to be a part of the family. It's generally fucked up. <laughs> like, you know, everybody has their problems inside like family. Um, but then, you know, obviously we have like extra, extra stuff. And um, so my parents, my adopted mother and father recognized at at a certain point that what they needed to do is they because because me and my sister like she was like my world right she was all I had after well she was all I had anyways like so when my sister was born into like my hellish existence um she was all that mattered to me because like up until my mother died like you know the stuff that I was enduring was just so you know, I remember praying for death, like when I was probably three or four, like it was wow. like, just being like, man, like I just, why was I born? Mm. Um, there's like social record of me running away when I was in diapers, like police finding me in the downtown east side in diapers and trying to like track down my mom and dad. Like we spent time you know like the downtown east side is really dear to my heart because like i spent my early years floating in and out of that area with my family you know my aunt janet and my mom and my aunt sandra and um living in the Belmoral. um and so anyways once we were adopted um into like a stable family for me stability and love and support uh was felt like violent right because all of a sudden like where was the violence where was the chaos where was the instability um i mean i i grew up with food insecurity shelter insecurity it wasn't until 2012 that I realized that I've been gen like, I'd been homeless, like since I was born, you know, mm -hmm. um, like a home is like where you, you know, your address, you know what I mean? That's like not going anywhere. We didn't have that. We we're just like all over the place. But um, so anyways, my, my parents, once we got adopted, my adopted parents quickly realized that I was trying to break, like, get my sister on board with everything I was doing. I was like, we got to get the fuck out of here. Like, this is a bad scene. And my sister's like, okay, cool. Like, tell me what to do. She's like two, you know, or three. And like, you know, I started like running away immediately. And so my parents kind of stepped in and then we're like, okay, you guys like aren't, I, I don't remember. I think it was like probably around 10 like when I was 10, they were like, okay, like you guys aren't allowed to hang out. Like don't, unless wow. you and your sister are in the house together, like you're not hanging out. Like that's the deal because they knew I had so much power over her and because I was so bent on getting away. So they had to step in. Um, and so I was always trying to figure out a way how to get my sister out. You know, like I was going to the ministry and I was telling them like, you know, like I got to get my sister out of there. And they're like, but she's good there. Like, 
Um, and then once I finally was gone, my sister started holding me responsible for leaving, you know? Mm -hmm. And so as we've grown up, even though when we finally, you know, reconnected on our own, when she was like 19, there was a few years where we, we were spending time together and got really close, but then, you know, uh, some stuff that had happened to her, some trauma, um, in her early years, like early, not teens, but what's that preteens? I don't know what that's called, but all of a sudden I was like held responsible for not being there to protect her and things like that. So yeah, it's definitely become like, uh, became a big problem for us, just the way that life unfolded and like really to no fault of anyone's. It's just that like, I mean, some things there's actually some saying about like, there's like this knot, I think it's like a Gideon's knot or some knot that it just, there's no way to like undo that knot. Like it's just so complex and so confusing and some knots are just, that's what it is. It, it just is what it is, you know? And you can't blame it on anything. Like we just do the best that we can in the moment to like deal with stuff. Um, and, and that's all we can do. Right. Um, I've really had to come to terms like over the last, like I've, I've been in flux over the past, you know, 20, 30 years of my life of like blaming my adopted family for things and, and, and then coming back to just being like, man, like they just, they had no clue. Like they had no clue what they were getting into. They, they went to the registry and they said, we want to adopt some kids. And, and then they got me <laughs> like, and it's just like, oh man, you know, my mom's just like the most incredible human being like on this planet. Like the fact that she was able to like intuitively do the things that she did um, through the late seventies or so sorry, the eighties and the nineties, the eighties, especially when like mental health wasn't talked about, you know, like, it's not like, you know, what it, where we're at today, like it's totally different. So, but she, she did some really amazing things and without knowing any of this stuff, you know, just being a good human being. What kind of things are you talking about? Just to give people an idea uh, of what I think somebody like, who didn't know could do just on the point of humanity and caring and so on. Yeah, I think like, so just like my mom's understanding of like what it takes to like live in the world um, that she just really understood that life is really hard and that we have to like accept that life is hard and that it can't be a big drama that if I stay in a drama place, then I'll never get anywhere. And it's going to, you know, like, it, it, like when I'm in a victim place, um, 
it excludes um, connection. It doesn't promote it, right? Like people don't want to be around that kind of stuff. Um, but my mom, the way that she acknowledged without understanding, like I could tell her like the things that I'd been through, the things that I knew. And she was like, she never felt sorry for me. Like she never like was like, oh, like you poor thing. She was always like, you, you are so strong and you have the ability in you to like rise above all of this stuff and be the best version of you, despite like having the worst start. You know what I mean? So that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? Like where, um, you know, and I, and I think like, a lot of people, they don't really get that stuff. Like they think love is feeling sorry for somebody mm. and that's not love. Like, you oh, know, feel, what a great sorry point. For, Can you yeah. repeat that please? <laughs> love is not feeling sorry for someone. Yeah. Um, Bars. And it's, yeah. So, it's like, I don't know, like one of the things that I realized like early on is when I was going through this stuff as a child, like I didn't think about it, but I was like, you know, I was getting into, I was already doing crime when I was like, just in, just cause like, that's the way I grew up when I was uh, adopted. So I was going out shoplifting and stealing stuff and I, I remember my mom, the first time I got busted and bringing me to court, she was like, I was like, what's going to happen? She was like, well, you're just, you just go in there and you tell them that you did that. And I was like, okay, well, that just makes sense. Right. And then she was like, and then you, you, you tell them what you're not going to do it again. Cause you're not. And I was like, yeah, but I, okay. I like, I won't, I will try not to. And she was like, well, like, yeah, that's the whole point is you, you tried not to, but at the very least you, you live in the bed that you made. And so I learned really early on to take responsibility for myself, for everything that like, you know, mm. like humility is like, is, is where strength lies. Right. So to just walk in, you know, as like a nine-year-old with my mom and kind of look at the judge and being like, yeah, I did this. And, you know, like, tell him, I want to make this right. How do I make this right? And so my mom taught me how to do things like, like without, without making me a bad person. Like she never told me I was a bad person for what I did, but she would tell me like, you know, if I did something bad, you know, like you got to take responsibility for it. And then also that, like you have to live with that the rest of your life. So just, you know, remember that there's levels to this stuff. And, and so I learned early on that, that there was like a line I just wouldn't cross, you know, because what are the consequences? Cause I always consider this because of my mom, like, you know, what are the consequences that I can manage? And I'm like, yeah, I can handle like a couple of years in jail. Like that, that's about it. Like, I don't want to do more than 10 you know, so like considering the crimes, whatever I ended up doing later in life, but that was, 
when I started going through the system in that sense, I ran into all sorts of unsavory people that would constantly like be like, I didn't do this. And like, I'm going to beat this. And, and I watched them suffer. You know, they'd be like constantly like, I'm, you know, we'd be in jail and they'd be like, okay, like I'm going to beat this thing. And it would tell me I was saying, I'd be like, shut the fuck up. Like, you know what you did this, like, just, you know, don't try to like get me on side with your, like your, your BS. Like I'm in the same shirt as you are. And, um, so I think it's stuff like that, that my mom just was incredible for not raising, uh, an entitled victim, you know, cause that could have easily been the outcome for, um, and I see it all over the place. Um, you know, like there's, there's a lot, like people seem so entitled to their pain these days, um, entitled to suffering and, um, opposed to like, you know, like where Martin Luther King was just such a, he was a savage man. That guy was such a warrior, right? He just, he never like was wasn't like crying around about stuff. He was like able to articulate things that promoted engagement. And it was like amazing to listen to. You're like, yeah, man, like I want to do everything you say. And like, you know, because it's like, he, he, he's not like saying these things in a, in a poor me fashion. Like my brothers just got their arms bit off by dogs or hosed down by fire hoses last night or, or like, like shot to death in their beds by the police. So what, all these things, he, he was able to like say things um, in such a way that was just like it, it made people want to rise up and be a part of what he was saying um, because he wasn't at, he wasn't entitled to his pain. He wasn't like a victim, you know what I mean? And, and I think that's like really like when I think of my mom, I just think like that's, that's who she is just as a person like that, that grew up around like with her her understanding of of love you know so did you ever meet your grandmother mm. did you know her like I did you... yeah so it was um it was a really actually um so I got adopted uh and I was seven years old and so up until right before um, I ended up in foster homes. I was all like, my granny was really like my second, like she was my mom. She was my, like my second mom, but it was really like the three, like, the, like in, in indigenous families is like quite tight with like the kids. So, you know, my mom, my two aunts uh, or my aunts and my, my granny. But um, after when I got adopted, I started running away, trying to connect, trying to connect with everybody. And it wasn't until I was, I think I was probably 10 or 11 when I finally found her again, but she was quite sick. And 
I think within the year, the first, the, the year that I finally found her, um, she ended up passing away from liver, like because cirrhosis of the liver or whatever. And that sent me on a horrendous to tailspin like trajectory where I, I really just, I remember like I went to that funeral and I held everybody in that hall accountable for robbing me of time with my grandmother. So like on one side was my non-Indigenous family and on the other was my Indigenous family because I had tried to connect with them. I had done all the work to connect with them and, you know, like my uncle and my grand, my aunt, like who are like, you know, chief head of reconciliation Canada and all these like fancy people, they just didn't show up for me. And I knew I had powerful family um, and people that could have took me and my sister in and they, and they didn't. And what that did is it sort of like, I, I think it's like kind of like that Batman moment where it's like, okay, like I'm taking everything. <laughs> like, like now, now everybody owes me. Okay. Like, okay. You, you, you are bad. You're bad. And so like from here on out, I'm like, I'm allowed to be and do whatever I want to do. And so, yeah, I just, it, 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 it was like, it was like a really rough, rough moment. Um, and actually probably was like the beginning of like stopping acknowledging that I was native or indigenous at all. Like, you know, from that moment on, like I mean, I remember when I, I moved to, or I got moved to Penticton when I was 14 or it was like 14 and I was put on independent living and I was living in a motel. And um, I remember distinctly like being like, I'm going to become this new version of me. And I gave myself a new name and a new identity and that's just who I was. I was just, I'm Chavez. <laughs> like, and it's so funny because now there's like, I remember I got married. Uh, I was married for a minute. And it's like, so the woman that I was married to are walking down the street and this guy walks up and he's like, Chavez, what's up, man? <laughs> I was like, and I'm like, I'm like, hey, what's up? And she's looking at me like, Chavez what's up and I'm like oh god uh, so so what is this independent living thing like is it a program like is it yeah so back in the day I mean I think it's still there um you know ch like children in foster care very few children will be put on independent living um but I had been through Oh man, it's like a, this humongous chapter of my life that is very confusing, but um, I had some really bad diagnosis from doctors and um, 
one doctor in particular, Dr. Hay, uh, I was like 11 years old and he said that I was, a, he just like whimsically said in a, in a family counseling session, like that I was a sociopath and within a week or two, I was locked up in a psych ward. And, um, so there was like this chunk of time where I was going to school an alternative school from the psych ward. And then I got sent to a child psych unit in, in Victoria, uh, for three months where they were doing all this, like kind of trying to figure out what was wrong or if I was a sociopath. And then I cycled out from there to a personal development program and interior. And so on one hand, counselors and psychologists were like, no, like this guy is the way he is because of what's happened in his life. He's not a sociopath. He's not a psychopath. Um, and they viewed me as like highly functional, um, intelligent and but then also recognize that I just I didn't function in foster homes well at all like I just didn't follow rules I just did my own thing um, I didn't cause damage to the home or the people but because I was just so on my own path like nobody could tell me at 13 to like be home by nine, like I was coming home in three days or whatever. Um, so finally they just were like, okay, after that personal development program, we're going to put you on independent living because yeah, there's just no, you, you can't keep putting you in these foster homes and expecting different results. Right. Um, and my adopted family at that time had, also made a decision not to bring me back into the family. Mm. Right. So, the, so the internet tells me that uh, uh, youth who participate in these programs must be referred and they must have an open file with a mental health clinician at the time of the referral and must continue to see a mental health clinician while you're in the program. And they support you by helping you find a place to live, manage money and that sort of thing. So seemed yeah I do accurate. yeah I do remember yeah and I remember there being at in the beginning there was what was like um this outreach worker like a street worker it was called and would come and grab me once a week and I did my own shopping like they kind of went with me to pay the bill but like mm -hmm. I was in charge of of everything and I had to see um yeah a counselor once a week and um but then outside of that I was kind of free to do whatever I wanted when we when you and I were speaking um earlier this week you had mentioned that you you'd talk, you talked about being uh carrying a status card and yeah. um we we kind of found some common ground you know, as someone who like is biracial and would never quite fit in fully with like my Chinese family or my white family, you kind of had this weird identity dysmorphia, I guess, while you were growing up. And I guess even now. 
yeah, I, I definitely feel like I've always, you know, I remember going to rehab or it wasn't rehab. It was, you know, the first step towards some sort of drug and alcohol treatment in 2006 and the therapist being like, you're having an identity crisis, man. And I was like, I'm not having a dating crisis. And he's like, you definitely are. And I realized that like, yeah, I, for even up until now, like it's, it's been really like, I didn't for one, like the, the status card. So kind of cycle back to that a little bit. The status card was very confusing for me because I wasn't acknowledged as a native person until uh, some sometime I think I was 18 or 19. And that had to do with my mom having me out of wedlock. And so something about indigenous women being stripped of their rights as a status uh, or even being, you know, like having status because like they had children or weren't married. So I guess they lost it. And that bill was overturned somewhere around when I was 18 or 19. And then I remember getting my status, but because I'm only half, I've never, or like I'm only registered half. um, I've never really felt like entitled to being an indigenous person or, you know, being native, like it's like, there's, there's been all these actions over the years, like that I've, I've watched kind of from the sideline and, and I see my family taking action and, but they also didn't include me in a lot of this stuff. So I've just kind of been like, I'm just Donovan, you know, and it's only been in the past week that I've just started to be like, you know, I care about the fact that I'm indigenous because, um, and I care about not so much about the, that I'm indigenous, but that there's another kid like me that's on a path that's going to be fucked up. And so I have to step out front and start to like really acknowledge and say that I'm, I'm an indigenous person. I am native and I have, I'm from, you know, the Kwakwaka'wakw people. I'm like, and really start to own that for, not for myself, but for um, other people like me. Uh, Because I didn't have anybody when I was growing up to look to either that made me feel that that it was a good luck either you know there wasn't anyone you know there wasn't people like oh like i'm half i'm a half you know whatever like it mm-hmm. um i just didn't have any role models and i was desperately looking for them when i was a kid like so for for our listeners who don't know um the status cards um basically are just colonizers trying to keep track of the first nations people and you could be revoked status or for one marrying a man who is not a status 
not of status, uh, two, enfranchisement, so once they could vote. Uh, three, having a mother and paternal grandmother who did not have status before marriage. And four, being born out of wedlock of a mother with status and a father without. Yeah, which makes it incredibly misogynistic, to totally. be honest. So um, there's the sex discrimination in the Indian Act. And I think it was the McIver case that was fighting against that, I believe. Um, I think it was Sharon McIver who took the government to court over that. And even that, then, like, you have different statuses, like 61A or something like that, where the sex discrimination is rampant. Um, for those of you who want to look at the actual text, you can easily look it up on websites and so on and so forth and the missing and murdered indigenous women's and girls report really gives a really good breakdown of the the impact of that sex discrimination on indigenous women and girls i do have a question since we're on this topic so i'm i'm kind of going through like your matriarchal line here so mm -hmm. first granny and then you mentioned your aunt and your mother's best friend, I believe, and Picton. And I think that that's, <laughs> sorry, but it's, it's, it's one of those stories that should have kind of alerted us, the wider public, to the insane, like, to that, basically. And now that we're doing this, this, this um, hearts and minds or whatever we're doing um, in Canada, it's, it's, it's a story worth bringing up because at the time that it was reported, I don't think much was made of the fact that a lot of his victims were Indigenous and mm. that that was the continuation of that sort of you know acts that flow from the indian act that is my point like like the the colonialism and the misogyny right erica basically yes mm -hmm. i so like this is stuff that i'm just kind of probably if you're on a computer right now you could easily just quickly google and what what the ratio is in the downtown east side right now uh, of native people to non, but it's it's huge. Like, so the people in the downtown east side are, I think the majority, are, or there's a huge chunk uh, is made up of, of, of indigenous people, right? Um, I don't know what the stats are, but it's a lot. Um, yeah, my my aunt uh, in I think it was ninety, geez, so it was ninety five. I think it was ninety five. Started, you know, um, her and my other aunt, my aunt Janet. So my aunt Sandra and my aunt Janet, um, and my mom. They were at the the youngest of of 
the children in that humongous family because there was there was 12 kids um but anyways and they were all really tight my aunt janet and aunt sandra would meet regularly they talked regularly and when oh that's what my my my, my so my so my aunt told me the reason that it was messed up that uh my aunt Janet didn't call in or show up to meet was because they were waiting on their GST checks and that they were going to go and do their girls thing. And so when my aunt Janet didn't show up, it was like a really big deal. So she went to the police and they kind of just shrugged their shoulders um, at first. And then, you know, my my aunt Sandra was like really panicky about it and it would be uh seven years before they actually started to look into it and when they I think it was like seven years to the date till they started looking and then within that year I think that's when my 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 aunt Janet's teeth were found on the uh, Picton Farm, and I think there is also somebody wrote a book. I think one of the investigators pieced together that my aunt Janet was also a one of Clifford Olson's uh, victims, but she had managed to escape. So, God. like, how does you know? Wow, yeah, it's just. It's just unreal, like these two really significant serial killers in Canadian history, and my aunt happens to like be associated with both. And but in the in the one instance, she managed to escape and get away from Clifford Olson, and in the other, obviously uh, not get away. Yeah, so wild stuff wild and really intense like for for me it's like I remember the day that I found that out too I was um really entrenched in my own uh righteousness like in taking so I was like deep into my sort of criminal endeavors uh moving around shuffling drugs and thinking that I was like a somebody. And I remember meeting with this guy and we were like making a big transaction and sitting down at the table in a subway and then seeing the newspaper. And, and I'm like, he, he, he went to pick it up and I'm like, wait, can I see that for a sec? That's my aunt. And then I flipped it open and that's how I realized that this had all come to come to a head and just kind of like he was like I remember him just being like really tripped out about it and then I'm just trying to like not have any sort of reaction you know because like just because of the circumstances what we were doing at that moment I just couldn't um but yeah it's just so like yeah so the the percentage of the Danton Eastside population uh, that is Indigenous is 31%. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's nuts, right? That's a humongous chunk of the, the population yeah. because nobody else makes up that much. No other population. No, right? it, it's, it says it's the highest proportion of Indigenous peoples in the city. Yeah. But then, <laughs> Which is yeah, like astounding. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is like, I was, I met with a friend of mine who works for the Portland Hotel Society and he's really great. But um, he, he goes, you know, I walked out of my office this morning. It's been 20 years. I keep coming out of that office. And he's, he's like, you know, I've got a very light heart about the work that I do in the sense that I can't overly think it but he goes just just for whatever reason today as I walked out and just being like you know nothing has changed here in 20 years people are homeless and that number isn't fluctuated it's kind of kept going up and um and it's not changing you know it's like it's really weird to hear somebody working in that place and kind of going like, like confused about what are we actually doing? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like it, like those are boots on the ground and those people are as confused as anyone else. Like what the hell is going on? Like nothing has changed, you know, it's a massive, it's a massive policy and government failure. Like it's incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. And I don't, I don't get it. Like I, I've contemplated like over the past week or so, like, do I, do I intentionally be homeless now for the summer to like make an action? Like do, you know, cause it's just so stupid. Like, and I don't know how to like shed more light on this, but I do know from my experience this last year of ending up homeless um, that, you know, there's being, there's tons of money being pumped into the downtown East side and it does nothing. It does like absolutely like what it's getting used for is like totally useless or it's not, you know, I don't know. It's, I, I actually, I'll share with you this, um last year and my i was really in a bad way mentally and emotionally um i had had sir i had a uh a surgery that went sideways and then i had some really um bad doctors get their hands on me and i ended up crippled from there um when i was in the hospital at one point my landlord rented out my apartment from underneath me and I just kind of threw my hands up in the air and then it was just like okay fuck it like I gave up I just was I'd already given up at that point so I ended up on the street and when I was there what's the weirdest part was that I have money I have enough money to not be on the street um but when I decided to start to try to get off the street, I couldn't for the life of me, which was really crazy because I, the, my personal financial situation 
should allow me to. So I just realized like, okay, like this is so, the housing thing is so complex that it's like, it's not just a money issue for somebody that's actually like homeless without money. Like they don't just walk off the street. Like it takes a ton of courage for somebody to, to like even try to attempt to get into this housing market, you know, because people are like lining up in droves to like, you know, try to get an apartment. And then there's credit checks and all this bullshit, like where you feel like you're being violated and you just want a place to live, you know, like how come, how come it feels so violating to get our basic need, you know? Like, that's our right. That's like, that's not a, a credit thing. That's like, you know, but when the right people were affected this year, all of a sudden it was like, there was a rental freeze. There was, uh, the government went and talked to the banks. It was like, yo, like some people, like the right type of people might be uh-huh. affected. So like, you know, we need to make sure that their mortgages are okay. And it's not that I don't think that that's right. That is a hundred percent the right thing to do. But that's also like in the face of this huge homeless epidemic, this huge opioid crisis that like these these things are being handled fucking so differently. Like, you know, welfare to get on welfare at at a certain point, it was like you had to go to jail to get on welfare. And then this last year when COVID hit, it was like you had to answer three questions to get $2,000. But like over the years, you had to go to like at best, your the best and quickest way to get on welfare to get that $550 was to get a shoplifting charge and go to jail so that a social worker in the jail could like say, yeah, I see this person and they're here in jail. So like, let's get them on welfare. But if you're a street person on the street and you try to even make it to appointment, like who can make it to an appointment when you're homeless, Um, let alone start to jump through the hoops to get there. And I mean, that's only one facet. I mean, I haven't even talked about EI, right? But so in the face of all this, this COVID thing, it was like, when that happened, it was like, oh, now we realize like, 550 can you imagine if they tried to give normal people 550 dollars to live off this year like hey yeah like the we we expect to lock you down and you know make this 550 dollars work people would have just went what the what are you talking about but no they just freed up it was like serb was two thousand bucks and you had to answer three questions on a computer and have made five thousand dollars like it was so easy to get that money but for like the past two decades, you know, people that were of not the right population couldn't get on um, social assistance. It's amazing how quickly things can get done with the right motivation. Mm. The reason things take so long to change is the people who don't want the change digging their heels in and they usually have power. So whenever you hear like change takes time, you have to ask, I wonder why and how much time do you expect this change to take? Yeah. And it doesn't take time. That's the thing is it really, it's like, it's right now, like we just do it. Like, you know, like, and that's what they did. Like this past year was when, when things needed to happen, they just did it. 
that's it. I was like, oh, okay. You know, so now like when you kind of cycle back around and you look at the opioid crisis, you're like, oh fuck, like we can, we can do something like right now immediately. Um, but uh, people are dying in droves from this thing. And they keep saying like, yeah, we'll talk about it in July. Can you imagine mm-hmm. like for the, for the moms, for the dads, for the brothers, for the sisters, for the cousins, like everybody in North America has at some point or another been impacted by the opioid crisis. Like it's like, it's so wild and nothing is being done about it. Like, and, and the fact that people are still in this state where, you know, this particular substance that people choose to put in their body, whatever it is, like if people say it's cocaine or some sort of stimulant, Adderall or um, Oxycontin, morphine, heroin, which are all the same thing. Um, you know, we say that's not okay that you put that in your body, but you put a more and more poisonous substance in your body, alcohol which is far more poisonous and far more toxic, far more damaging than any of those drugs. Um, But that's okay. You know, it's okay. You you know, go have some beers and that's totally fine. But this one's really such a trip to me. And then the, 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 the trauma that it's causing, like I remember one day seeing this guy and he was overdosing and he was like right near, um, gassy jacks and, and water on water street and regular people that were going to their jobs um, to be barbers or to be servers or to be whatever are being traumatized. Like it's, it's so harsh. Like that's the rest of that person's life. Like they don't know and they're going to normalize that experience and say like, Oh yeah. But like on, on a deep uh, cellular level, your body recognizes that it just saw a person dead, you know, or at least it may have looked dead. And whether you cognitively think or recognize that your body still feels it. And you carry that shit with you everywhere. It's like shell shocked. Right. And it's, it's just like the, the government can stop this stuff. We can do something about it. And talking is just so like, Oh, it's so harmful. Let's talk about it okay let's talk about this yeah it it takes courage and like courage that requires accountability and like no one wants to be accountable for when things ultimately fail or if things fail it just means that uh, they want to keep talking about we'll do something eventually or we'll make incremental steps which amount to very little change in progress yeah i know like last maybe it's been two years now one of my sort of distant relatives um marcus alfred who is kind of a cultural jewel uh like as it were like he held you know all the big names that matter um dances he like an incredible artist and young guy like 30 something and I remember seeing him I was kind of was walking on Pender and I seen him kind of 
like with this like mission walk and he had a mask under his arm that he had made and or that he was making in Kwakwakiwak masks go from anywhere from like three thousand to ten thousand dollars like you can like an artist can go into any one of these uh artist shop like what do they call it like an art like an gallery artisan? yeah yeah like one of these in the water street and those guys will snap it up for you know a few grand or whatever and so i imagine that he was just going to flip it and then i think like probably three or four hours later i got a message from another person in my kind of relative distant relative was like hey have you seen marcus and i was like yeah i just saw him and she was like oh he's dead and i'm like holy shit like that's so crazy i just saw him you know and it was such a humongous loss to the community uh to just like what he brought to the table like um from that nation and our nation isn't like really huge like if you if you google numgis i think we have a registry of like 1800 maybe 1900 1900 people is not a lot you know what i mean and um yeah so just the fact that this guy decided that like he wanted to use something like that was his choice and but not knowing what what the substance is because we don't know what what it is it's not um pharmaceutical grade and that just the end of it for him you know like that's just such a lame and such a just a shitty shitty thing like on our society that we couldn't couldn't have done better and we i i think we can and it's it's like not you know we've seen it happen in other countries like portugal and but i know that in 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 some european countries too that that it's like the way that they're dealing with substance is just so much different and we can do it we don't have to we did it with liquor so like all of a sudden it will take out the criminal factor will take out the trauma factor if it's if it's something about we're we're worried about money it's going to be a huge lift in burden on society because like one guy um whether he's dying having police interaction ambulance going to the hospital uh going through the courts like all of those things like that stops that guy's going to his doctor instead when that conversation happens like when i go to my doctor and i said like you know i'm feeling like i want to use or something i want some morphine and then it's like the doctor's like oh like you haven't used in a year so let's start you off at like a some at this particular dose i'll see you tomorrow so that conversation now is happening in real time so that they know okay like this is where you're at and so that when you come down there's no withdrawal in it it's just like a, a taper down and then you carry on with your life you feel love you feel supported you know you don't feel like like um trash right because right now the way that addiction is promoted is like people are trash they're in the alleys using and so you got to think like people that are using in an alley right beside a trash can they just feel exactly like trash and so to make it 
out of that place, you're not going to do it because you're just like, I'm trash. Look where I am, you know? But when you start having that conversation with your doctor, I think like all of a sudden everything changes because it's, you have support, you know, but yeah. Oh, that's what I wanted to say is. So what I realized this week for me is that this stuff about me being a drug user or, um, I'm not a drug user anymore, a drug dependent. I don't like the word addiction because it just like it seems to like minimize like my choice to uh-huh. to use, but also um, I don't have a disease. Like I started to medicate because of the pain that I experienced in my life and the confusion and the loss and all those things. But for me, linking my self-destructive behavior to the indigenous act, the way that the government took up uh, our people and just down to simple things like that status card, like to say that I'm not, I'm not recognized as a native person because my mom like slept with so-and-so like what? Like how crazy is that? You know what I mean? And, and, and so anyways, like this, I'm 45 years old. So to just have that awareness and realization that I am a product of this government's action against indigenous people is like, that's so wild for me for 30 years to like, to come to finally get to that place. Like, Oh, like, so the reason why all this happened is this, like, I would have ended up in a different place if it was, you know, yeah, such a trip. Um, But yeah, this has been really interesting uh, learning about your life, particularly within the context of what's happened recently with the residential schools. And I think that you're, I, I personally am just like so lucky to know you and like for you to share your life, your experience and like all of your wisdom with us and our listeners. It's been, I'm really appreciative of that because like it is a lot to just share and just like put out there for people to, to consume. So like your vulnerability is deeply appreciated. Thank you. I really appreciate the, the space and like these, these things that people are doing, like you guys are created this podcast i mean they're so incredible for people for you guys as human beings too but um i know that i didn't understand mentally what a podcast was and so when i was on the ari shafir podcast and i think that was 2013 i just thought that ari and i were having a conversation like i didn't like that's how I experienced that. I walked into his suite at the plaza and we sat down and we had microphones, but my brain just wasn't comprehending that what I was saying to Ari was going to go out to, you know, half a million listeners. Um, and I'm so grateful for not knowing and understanding because <laughs> um, up until then I practiced that, like not sharing stuff like this Mm -hmm. so in the Ari podcast I just said all of this everything I just said all the things it was just me and him I thought it was just him and I talking and then over the next month or two 
you know, I'd have stand up like other comics come up to me and be like, Oh my God, you were on Ari's podcast. Like he's got millions of listeners. And I was like, what do you, what, what do you mean? Cause I said like, no, I'm, I ruined my life. If that's what you're what? And I really <laughs> honestly like, ah, uh, the, the, the fear in me as like it neared to a time where I knew Ari was going to call me and say like it's live or whatever when he messaged me he was like hey man I just want you to know I just uploaded um that episode that we did it was like five months later he was in New York and I was like holy fuck like I ran home I ran in my room I put my headphones in I never listened to a podcast before and I laid down and I listened to myself speak and it was the first time I'd ever heard myself talk really um which is weird because I'm a stand-up I was a stand-up comic at that time but I just never listened to myself and so listening to myself say these words and then being like yeah that's that's true but then also realizing that it wasn't as bad as I thought and then simultaneously uh you know, tw- the trash can that is Twitter. I think that's what you <laughs> said. Um, my Twitter just started to explode like followers and, and it was just like this. And all these people were saying um, these amazing things to me How and, and how they related to me. So that podcast gave me permission to be vulnerable and also showed me that there was no fear in that and that the truth was exactly as my parents had said the world just wants you to be yourself donovan and i never believed that until that moment and so when all those hundreds of thousands of people showed up and said no like this is the best like you as you that's that's the money and i was just like oh wow and from that moment on that was like that was my big lesson in in vulnerability and understanding that's where connection happens is when I'm honest. I don't need to exaggerate. I don't need to act like a victim. I don't need to be sad or anything. I can stand in the space. I can be courageous and say, this is who I am. And like, you know, these are, it's not a sad story anymore because of the things that I do today. So yeah, I'm just really just jazzed about like these experiences because it just like it reinforces esteemable action in me, which is what I've been, you know, just trying to get to my whole life, right? Mm-hmm. So thank you for having me. And uh, if people want to follow you on Instagram and see your photography, where can they find you? Yeah, at Donovan P E E. D-O-N-O-V-A-N-P-E-E. Um, I'm gonna, I would like to actually start to use my Twitter a bit more. Um, I don't. That's brave, like, sir. Very brave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, for me, like, I don't really read stuff. So Twitter is a really good medium for me because I'm like, a, like Joe Rogan says, like a post and ghost kind of guy. Um, and and I like Twitter in the sense that you can kind of reach out and connect with somebody really quickly. Like, like if I want to contact or, or see what get involved in a conversation, 
like, man, I've made some, made some major things happen. When Corey Monteith died, like, uh, I got on there because yeah. Leisha Corbello, it, the chief editor of the Calgary Herald, beaked off about the safe injection site being the reason why he was dead. And I knew mm. Corey. Uh, and I was like, and I, I said, this is, oh, I said, I'm, the reason why I'm here today is because of that place. Leisha Corbello and I got together. She flew out from Calgary and had a sit down with me. And I got to give, get her uh, a, a tour of the safe injection site. Even though she's a hardcore conservative and a psychopath, um, <laughs> but <laughs> but anyways, I still like I still think like yeah, Twitter's been really good and powerful for me at times. But yeah, Donovan Pee. Great, um, thank you so much, and uh, yes. we'll be back later this week. <laughs>